we're already seeing the impacts of climate change. And even if it hasn't affected us directly, it's more of a matter of when, not if. We already know from countless studies that climate change is going to disproportionately affect women and children and the elderly, poor or unhoused, and populations of color who generally tend to live in places that have been treated unfairly historically and uh, are still dealing with the brunt of that. Health literacy is a topic you might have heard about, and it's certainly one that has informed projects I've worked on in CME and CPD. For those of you who want to learn more, I'm recommending the Health Literacy Out Loud podcast, hosted by Helen Osborne. Helen's podcasts are interviews with those in the know about some aspect of health communication, patient education, or health literacy. Guests share real-world experiences and suggestions about ways to communicate clearly about health. To listen and learn more, go to www.healthliteracyoutloud.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, the link is in the show notes. Are you unintentionally contributing to the planet's digital carbon footprint? you're about to discover the hidden impact of your online activities. As content creators and strategists in CME and CPD, we likely don't consider the climate impacts of our websites, documents, videos, and other digital materials. But all that data requires substantial energy to power the creation, storage, and transfer of bytes, which generates carbon emissions that contribute to climate change. In today's eye-opening episode of Right Medicine, Alisa Bonsignor, a content strategy and sustainable content expert, reveals the surprising truth about the environmental impact of our digital world. Whether it's the websites we browse, the videos we stream, or the documents we store, our online habits are not as harmless as they seem. For CME-CPD professionals, understanding this connection is vital in making informed decisions that align with environmental sustainability. In today's episode, you'll gain insights into how digital content, including websites and emails, contributes to carbon emissions. You'll learn practical strategies like streamlining and removing unnecessary pages from your websites to create more sustainable and climate-friendly content. You'll understand how to balance visual impact with environmental responsibility when you're creating graphics, video and other visual media, and in doing so, you'll enhance the effectiveness of your digital presence. And you'll appreciate the rationale for encouraging practices like video off meetings and transitioning from video to audio or text formats. Tune in to episode 88 to hear digital sustainability expert Alisa Bonsignor explain how education content creators like you can reduce your climate impacts through smarter governance of bytes and pixels. Welcome to Write Medicine, where we explore best practices in creating continuing education content for health professionals. I'm Alex Housen, and I'm on a mission to share expert insights and field perspectives on topics like adult learning, content creation techniques, 
effective formats and trends in healthcare that influence the type of continuing education content that we create. Right Medicine is the premier podcast for CME CPD professionals like you, wherever you are in the content creation process. Join us. Hello and welcome, Elisa. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. It's good to see you. Well, this morning for me, I think you're probably on a different a different time zone. Yes, yes, still morning. <laughs> still morning. Okay, good. So please tell listeners who you are and something about the work that you do. Sure. So I'm Elisa Bonsignor of Clarifying Complex Ideas, and I have a content strategy and sustainable content consultancy. I'm based in Phoenix, but I work with clients around the world. My background is primarily with healthcare and tech companies and sort of the intersection of the two. And, you know, doing content strategy and writing and sort of all of that, you know, big picture content stuff, right? But starting around 2015, I started to become aware of the digital footprint of all of this stuff that I'd been creating. I wanted to try and figure out what that impact was. And I was a little startled to realize that it was bigger than I thought. (laughs) So I originally came at it from the data center side, right? Like my clients were digital hoarders, as most of our clients and companies are, right? Multiple versions of pages and documents and slide decks and some things dating back a decade or more for products or product lines that they didn't even offer anymore, right? It's still out there. And that's not an insignificant amount of stuff, obviously. But then I started thinking about what it takes to to transfer that data. You know, the stuff that sits in your attic doesn't require a lot of energy in, in and of itself, but when you move it, that's where the energy comes mm-hmm. in, right? So that's that's kind of where I, I, I came about for, for all of this. So I'm, I'm thinking about that term digital hoarder, and I can already feel in my body a sense of, uh, I'm going to call it shame right now, because I'm pretty sure I have, you know, digital, digital files, digital content that date more than a decade. Because, well, and especially when yeah. you're independent, you right. want to hold on to those things because what if somebody audits it later on? What if there's some issue? You know, you want to make sure that you've got it all, all there for, for access. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, I had a coaching client call yesterday and we were talking about exactly that issue. How long do you keep things for? It's a bit like your, your tax returns. How long should you keep your tax returns for? Right. How right. long do you keep that slide deck for client X that was very tricky to put together? And you're a little bit worried that something's going to come back around and bite you on the bum. <laughs> you just never know, right? And so I think there's that there's that instinct too, and you know, especially even in even in the corporate side of things where management has changed, and sometimes mm. you're you know, okay, somebody you got a new manager now we're chasing this direction, but oh wait, now we've got a new manager now we're going back to the other direction. You know, you don't want to you don't want to toss something that might come back around. Mm. So I think that there's the reluctance to. To get rid of anything that that might be useful in that way. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked about energy a couple of times just in that, you know, first few sentences. So I'm curious how, in thinking about that, you're obviously somebody who thinks about environmental print, imprint and have been for for a while. Can you share a little bit about how data and carbon emissions are? connected or how data is connected to the idea of energy because I'm pretty sure that a lot of our listeners are not necessarily you know explicitly making that connection in their day-to-day work I certainly wasn't 
and why would you, right? Like, that's not something that, that from what I can see, normal people think about. <laughs> I, I tend, you know, I, I sort of, this, this sort of popped up into my head, and then it sort of was the rabbit hole from there and, mm. and the, the research around it. So basically, the digital stuff that we create, our websites, our videos, our podcasts, our documents, that's all just data, mm-hmm. right? And the bits and bytes of that data, that's nothing more than energy. And energy, and at least for the foreseeable future, generates carbon emissions. And you think, well, like that can't be that much. I mean, after all, we're transitioning to renewable sources like solar and wind. And as you know, surely most of that's renewable, right? But that's really not the case because in the US, it's less than 20% of the energy that we generate and consume. So for all of the increases that we're making in renewables, we're also using more energy overall. Mm. We've been, we're using today, we're using nearly double the amount of energy that we used in 1980. So even though our renewables are increasing, you know, in, in, in the, at the net level, it, it, it's just not keeping paces with the increases in our consumption. And I think that digital stuff, you know, accounts for a lot of that because like, look at how we're living our digital lives right now, right? Everything's video conferences, we've got streaming media, we have podcasts, we have, you know, like all, all this stuff. And like, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have any of these things because they're, they're, you know, an, an important part of our lives. But, you know, how are we, how are we considering that when we create and consume? So what are the options for that process of consideration. So for instance, you know, I was really struck in the um, article you shared in Technical Communication Online. Uh, I'm going to have to read this because it's quite long. You know, you shared an example of how the UK government digital service reduced its content by removing 72,000 pages from its website and how that's the equivalent of removing 37 cars from the road each year for the past decade. And that really, you know, provides context. Right. I think for writers who, you know, and other content creators who are not necessarily thinking about that connection between, you know, data, energy, emissions. Yeah. How, how can we use that sort of example as writers to think about, you know, the implications for what we do on a daily basis? And there's another part to that question, but let's focus on that first. Yeah, but I, I think it's so easy to fall into the trap of of just adding more and more stuff all the time, right? Because that's what we're measured on. Mm-hmm. I'm not measured to come into a client and take things away. I'm measured to come into a client and give more stuff, right? Most of the metrics that I had when I was in-house and most of my client, uh, you know, contact metrics, they're measured on what they create for, you know, whatever reason, right? And so if that's what our goals and our personal metrics and our bonuses are tied to, then the incentive is not to take away, the incentive is to put more in, mm-hmm. right? But there are, of course, two ways to reduce our, our footprint with governance. One is to create sort of less stuff overall, obviously, but also sort of lighter weight stuff. Do we need to have, you know, a, a, an email to an email newsletter to our customers twice a week? You know, is that really serving our purpose? Do we need to have a special landing page for every event the company goes to, right? Do we need to have, you know, everything behind a paywall with a separate, a separate micro site, right? Uh, does it need an app? You know, like it doesn't always need an app. Even though you want an app doesn't mean you need an app, right? So there's that, that stuff. But then there's also getting rid of the old stuff too, mm-hmm. right? What, what do we have that's just junk that's sitting around that's, you know, not only not useful to the customer now, but is getting in the way of customer experience. Because if your customer's Googling like, you know, okay, I'm looking for something about like whatever topic and they're finding out-of-date information on your website, well, then now they've, you know, gone to multiple pages and downloaded multiple things to 
you know, multiple presentations, multiple videos, multiple, you know, whatever, to get the information that could have just been presented to them clearly and succinctly in the first place, right? So all of this has benefits for the user experience, Mm -hmm. not just for the planet. You're talking about user experience. It's not something that a lot of writers, especially medical writers, necessarily think about. Can you share a little bit about what your kind of entry point into user experience was and how that's important in the work that you do? Yeah. So, I mean, again, not everybody has control of their digital footprint, right? If you're submitting documentation or reports or to agencies or journals or other organizations, there's guidelines for how and what you submit and what the, what the parameters are around mm-hmm. that, right? But if you have the capability to influence the format, then I'd advocate first, obviously, less data intensive and less energy intensive formats. For example, last week I was at a, a conference, a content strategy conference where I met a woman from a large healthcare nonprofit. I won't name names because I don't want sure, <laughs> to shame her. But you know, she was struggling with this and they were, you know, it was a disease based uh, nonprofit, right? And they were sending out two email newsletters a week to hundreds and thousands of subscribers, each loaded with lots of imagery. But it wasn't relevant imagery, right? It wasn't charts and graphs and facts or useful things. It was, you know, stock art of caregiver with their arm around an older person, you know, stuff that didn't really add value to the customer experience. It just added data and weight to the process, right? So more energy to transfer it, more emissions you know, as a result, right? Same thing with their website. It was laden with the same kind of imagery. It was running about eight megabytes for the homepage, mm-hmm. which is about twice the market average for a, for a web page. And it downloaded really slowly. And frankly, the imagery was really cluttering the page and making it hard for people to find the information mm-hmm. that they were looking for, right? So, I mean, we were talking about this in the context of she just wanted, you know, everybody just get on board and do things right, of course, as is always the way. But we were talking about just like how much how much impact we could have if you just, you know, remove one megabyte of imagery. I mean, it's still a huge web page, right? But it would load that much faster. It would reduce the page weight overall. And they would save about a half a ton of emissions per year when you extrapolate that over the million hits that they get mm-hmm. on their website. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's the kind of stuff that's just sort of hiding in plain view. And it, it it's it's complementary to other things that we, we do that are, you know, user-friendly, right? Plain language is user-friendly, but plain language also is usually less language, right? right? It's, it's less stuff, right? So it's not something that's, you know, a completely different direction, <laughs> you know, like taking sustainable content is not a completely different direction for, for your content. It's just another lens to look through what you should already be doing in terms of, you know, best practices for the user experience and, and making things really, truly usable. Mm-hmm. So the focus on sustainability and and accessibility is something that obviously chimes and aligns with the way a lot of you know medical writers and people working in continuing medical education and re- medical writing more generally can definitely get on board with as an idea. I'm curious though, who's thinking about this? I mean, you are sharing some pretty granular information about the technical aspects of carbon emissions associated with with data and that whole kind of energy transfer. And I know that you're involved in developing guidelines and and a way to think about governance. So where should we be going for up-to-date information about how to think about our data and digital imprint? So if I'm going to be really honest, there aren't that many people who are talking about this at some point, which is you know, why for, I spent a good couple of years going, well, nobody else is talking about it. So maybe I'm just 
I'm the outlier here, right? Like this can't be, this can't be as big of a problem as what I'm seeing, right? And now the more research I did, the more obvious it was that, yeah, actually this is a problem, but still it's, you know, getting the traction and, 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 you know, trying to teach people and trying to teach people in ways that they're willing to accept because <laughs> this is a, this is a difficult conversation to have because if you've been creating for your whole life and your all of your all of your income is based on what you're creating, it's yeah. very hard to say, oh, but actually, you know, there's a little problem here, right? Like we, we've got we've got some issues there. And again, I want to be upfront and say that I'm not advocating for for never creating or consuming digital content again. I mean, that's that's ridiculous, you know. Like we're we're not going back there, right? But we can do more with less. You know, I talked about the impacts of that emailed newsletter and the web page, but you know, what about a podcast like this one? Mm-hmm. The video version of this podcast, the same length, you know, apples to apples, generates 75 times the emissions of the audio version. Right. So is it important Yikes. for everyone to see our faces? And maybe it is. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, but I certainly see the value in conference talks, you know, the talking head with the slides, but in this format... I don't know, you know, like that's something that your audience would have to decide. But, you know, also Zoom meetings. Of course, our lives are in Zoom meetings now, right? Researchers from MIT say that your video off Zoom calls use only about 4% of the energy mm-hmm. and corresponding emissions is video on. So when you add in the shared screens, it adds a little bit more more emissions. So it bumps up to like 5%. But still just a fraction of what happens if everybody has their camera on mm. at the same time. And, you know, especially if somebody's presenting, we don't all need the camera on, right? We're not sure. looking at the tiny little boxes, right? You can't really see that well like, who's, who's responding in the little boxes, right? So if you can turn those off, you're, you're saving a tremendous amount of emissions. So let that be your justification for video off meetings <laughs> if you need that to push back on management. And yeah, somebody will say, you know, you should be using the phone and not Zoom, obviously, if your video is off. But as someone who works internationally, it is a lot easier for me to use one single tool that is mm-hmm. free for attendees to join. And we're not worrying about anybody having dial-in costs from various mm-hmm. countries or accessibility issues. It's something that's universal and easy to use, you know. So that's, you know, the reason for my justification anyway mm-hmm. for like video off Zoom over telephone. And so when you're working with clients, are you making these recommendations about how they can reduce their digital imprint and giving sort of rationales for, you know, how a meeting can be facilitated without, without that visual? Yeah. And, and we talk about that. Does it always work? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be honest because, you know, it, there are some company cultures where it is, you know, the camera must be on. That mm-hmm. is the way, you know, if yeah. we're working in this distributed environment. You know, it is very important to management that the cameras are on and that is a mandate and everybody's very leery about violating that, mm. right? Because that's, that's the culture of the, of the program. But, you know, when it's just a couple of us, well, you know, one on one, one on two, nobody seems to mind going dark, you know, when it's not the, when it's not that broader population that might have uh, mm. a little bit of scorn for that. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and, you know, we've been talking about, most of the examples you've been sharing have really been from, you know, the client perspective and the corporate world. I'm freelance, you're freelance. And we are also, we have to do things like marketing. Uh, you know, you're talking about websites and emails and the, the kinds of tools that we would use to, you know, get the word out there that we're 
you know, we have expertise in particular areas. And of course, the whole the whole kind of knowledge environment has very much moved to the content creator economy. Absolutely. And so as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, I, I don't know how many emails I've signed up for a lot of email newsletters. And we all have. Exactly. But around, a lot of them are around strategies for content creation. Mm-hmm. And there is absolutely no discussion about right. prudence in terms of perhaps cur- curtailing the amount of content that you put out there and also curtailing. It's not just, it's not just the number of words on a page. I mean, one of the things that I've learned from reading your work and talking to you a little bit is the number of pages it takes just to create an interface on a website right. between the between the content and the person reading it. It's like layers and layers and layers. That example of the UK digital service, 72,000 pages. There's a lot of, there's a lot more information there than, than I think. This episode of Right Medicine is brought to you by Right CME Pro, a professional development membership that provides skills and scaffolding for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Right CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects, group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME, and much, much more. Write CME Pro is a professional development membership for people like you who are ready to launch and grow a specialized CME medical writing niche. See the link in the show notes for more information about how to enroll. I anticipated. And so there's a question here. My question is for people who are working in the content creator economy and who are working in a freelance capacity, who are, who like corporate organizations need to kind of get the word out there. Are there things that you would recommend people think about as they are putting together their messaging, as they are putting together their materials? as they are trying to get that communication going between where they are and where they think their clients are? So I think that the, the thing to, to, to remember is try to consider what is the lightest weight <laughs> version of the thing. That, like if you need to get X amount of information out, right? Video obviously is the biggest, mm-hmm. right? That's got the most impact. Images, less. You know, gra- charts, graphs, you know, pictures, whatever. Text is less than that. So like, can you tell this in a different way? Mm-hmm. Can you approach this from a different angle? I, I think that we we had so much of the pivot to video, like mm-hmm. you know, yet another thing Facebook is accountable for, right? But like that whole pivot to video mentality where all of management was like, everything has to be a video. Everything has to be, you know, like visual content, right? Mm-hmm. And the YouTube algorithm prioritizes longer content mm-hmm. and, you know, stalling it out so that you're not even getting to what the substance is of thing until four or five minutes in, right? So I think that you, you just need to, to be thoughtful about it. I mean, when, when you look at the, all the things that you interact with on a given day, right? Like how many times have you gone to your bank's website and there's, you know, 
80% of your landing page is, is a, is a splash image of stock art of a woman looking at her mobile phone, right? <laughs> but what does that tell you? I mean, okay, it tells you that they have an app, but who doesn't have an app anymore, mm-hmm. right? Who doesn't have mobile banking mm-hmm. anymore? So that's not a differentiator. Is it showing what the mobile interface can do? No. Is it showing, you know, any value to it? No. I mean, she could just as easily be a picture of somebody sitting there scrolling Instagram. Like it doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything, right? So if you're going to use that much, that much real estate and that much weight and that much attention on the page to an image, make that image count, Mm. make it something that's useful. If it shows that the, you know, the mobile interface has, you know, a certain function to it that, you know, is, is distinctive and different or that you can achieve something with it, that's valuable. Mm-hmm. That's value add for your customer experience, right? But if you're, if you're talking about just like, you know, I'm sitting on the couch, you know, scrolling, like what, what, what's that telling? And so you're also wasting an amazing amount of just real estate on your page that could be used to tell a customer relevant story. We're not addressing, we're not addressing the, the, the audience with mm-hmm. this, right? It's not about the audience needs. It's about management wanting something that looks pretty. <laughs> and so that's, that's one of those frustrations that I have because, you know, the, the current design of everything is very image intensive and, mm-hmm. and images are lovely. Images are pretty, but what are they, what purpose are they serve? That's so interesting. I mean, I feel like there's a generational issue here as well, because, you know, I think about, so you know, I'm, I'm mostly on, well, I'm almost exclusively on LinkedIn as my, mm-hmm. you know, social platform of, of choice, but I have been on Facebook and, and Instagram. And what I'm seeing now, this is all context. What I'm seeing now is there are people kind of flooding onto LinkedIn who are bringing the, the meta and Instagram yep. mindset with them in terms of images and emojis and all those you know, kind of data heavy. Very much. And I think know, as Twitter is collapsing, yes, I'm seeing that more and more because people don't have that outlet anymore. Exactly. So they're bringing that to the LinkedIn. Yeah, exactly. And, and some of that is generational in that, you know, the, the under thirties, I'm going to say, uh, you know, have very much grown up with a visual mindset. Right. Yeah. And so one of the things I'm seeing is there's that mindset of everything's got to be, everything's got to be visual. Right. And so. I'm one, and of course, that's also the same generation that is, you know, when you look at the the kind of demographics and who's really dialed into environmental issues, it tends to be Gen Z. Gen Z, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had to think for a moment there. <laughs> tends to be Gen Z, but these are the same people who are also, uh, not exclusively, but are also really dialed into you know visual and and heavy data. Yeah presentation. I think that this is just not something that's been discussed, right? Like, you know, I mean, my son, obviously he's 16. He didn't know anything about this until I started talking about it. None of his friends know about this. And, and I think it's because it's, it's just not, it's not something prioritized. It's not something, I mean, in the scheme of things, I'm well aware that digital content is way, way, way down the world sustainability list behind weather events and famines and reducing education gaps from the pandemic and switching to renewable energy and Climate-related migration. I mean, there's so many like massive issues mm. out there, right? And you know, then you get to like, oh, and then there's digital content, right? Like, <laughs> I understand that that does not seem like a really big thing in the in in the scheme of things. But you know, we have more leverage at work than we do in our personal lives. I mean, so much of the story 
focuses on like you know sort of doing the big four of personal changes, right? Solar and EVs and not flying and going vegan. And you know the International uh, Energy Association Agency IEA says that we'll that'll get us to a four percent of where we need to be by 2050. Wow. So I mean, that's yes, depressing. okay, that's progress, right? <laughs> but that's like that's something. So I don't want to discount that. Sure. But we need to be thinking bigger, and we have more leverage at work. And so I should also note that the reason why we know about our climate footprint at all is because of a BP marketing campaign. Yes, the BP that used to be British Petroleum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They wanted to shift the responsibility off the shoulders of them onto individuals mm -hmm. so that we can squabble over things like plastic straws and what kind of cars we drive while they are the fifth largest greenhouse gas emis emitter in history. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like think about think about who is driving the the message behind, you know, what you're hearing too. So, you know, it's not all about you as the individual. Like we've we've got to use our leverage in the in the bigger bigger pictures at work. And I mean, obviously, scientists are going to be able to do more about this than you know content people, right? But at the same time, we do have some amount of leverage, and it's bigger at work. And so, in that work context, what are some of the metrics that we can be thinking about as we think about sustainability or digital sustainability? Right. So. I think when you're creating your digital content, ask yourself, you know, what is the leanest, smallest format in which this content is useful to the audience, right? Does it need to be a video? I mean, you know, maybe if you have slides to share or a tutorial to walk through step by step. But, you know, I've also had companies come to me and they want the two minute video of, you know, the smiling faces in the hallway and people high fiving in the factory and, you know, look at, look at how we build surgical lights and whatever. And, you know, I mean, that's all well and good, but like what does that serve for the audience, right? If you're going to put in your, your, your video budget, like let's put that into a tutorial for how to set things up or troubleshoot. Let's put that into something that actually has value for the audience, right? Could your video be a podcast? Maybe, maybe it doesn't need video visuals at all, right? right? Like maybe it's not something that, that, has to have video, but you're just so conditioned to think that everything should be a video. <laughs> that's what that's what we default to, right? I mean, what about text? You know, we could do this this interview here, maybe just as a Q and A style that's written on a blog, mm -hmm. right? We don't necessarily need it to be audio or video. Does it need an app? I mean, probably not. A website can usually do the trick, unless there's some sort of specific security issue that only a walled off app can resolve. So, you know, as you're thinking about this, you know, consider in balance both the audience and the impact, right? Like, you know, what, what are, where, where are we having the most value and the most benefit without doing the most harm? And are there places that people can go to find out more about, about these metrics and about the types of things that we, that we might do and think about and raise with our, with our clients or employers? <laughs> so you can go to my website. This is pretty much one of the few sources at, at this point, but clarifyingcomplexideas.com. But, you know, also I do want to, I want to give a shout out to uh, Jerry McGovern, who talked, he had, he wrote a book, Worldwide Waste, and he talks a lot about the impact of devices, right? Mm. So all the stuff that we're using to create and consume. He goes through life cycle, rare earth minerals, energy consumption, uh, water use, end of life recycling, like that's a whole other scope that is, right. you know, obviously relevant, but you know, like I got it, got to keep it contained. Right. But he's, he does, he does really great work on that front um, and has a lot of information there. So if you're interested in sort of that whole bigger picture, you know, please, please go there. 
But I think that we want to, you know, consider that there is a certain amount of urgency here and we're already seeing the impacts of climate change. Mm -hmm. And even if it hasn't affected us directly, it's more of a matter of when, not if. Mm -hmm. We already know from countless studies that climate change is going to disproportionately affect women and children and the elderly, poor or unhoused, and populations of color who generally tend to live in places that have been treated unfairly historically Mm -hmm. and uh, are still dealing with the brunt of that. So knowing this, I feel like I have an ethical obligation to make the changes where I can. And that's why I'm writing and talking about all this stuff. And you're involved in something called the Content Design Manifesto. Can you talk a little bit about that and what it involves? So, you know, when, when we're talking about good content, you go to, you go to content, content conferences and there's a lot of discussion about why does nobody listen, right? Why is yeah? You know, why are they bringing us in late? Why is it you know? Why is the design already created? And then they bring us in and go, oh, plug in some words here, you know, like fill that in. Mm-hmm. Can't you just wordsmith that right? Everything that goes on in the world anymore is content, right? Everything is information, and you can't consider design without content in, in collaboration. So, some colleagues of mine, but specifically led by uh, Tori Podmajerski, who's at Google at the moment. She put together this sort of baseline list. And obviously it doesn't get into details about, you know, how a form should be handled or how a, you know, a website should be handled, but sort of the underlying principles of how to best work with your content professionals to get the best outcomes. Mm. And that includes accessibility and that includes sustainability and that includes usability and just trying to balance all of those as considerations from the start of a project, not not as an afterthought of, oh, you know, well, we've got this great design now and, you know, okay, so we have to plug in some words and, oh, yeah, I guess we'll retrofit some accessibility on top of that, right? Which is sort of how, in a lot of cases, companies look at words, <laughs> you know? Anybody, yeah. ha- we all have word on our computer. We can just, you know, like little monkeys, we can just tap out Shakespeare, right? <laughs> and And that's just not the case. So I think that this is, you know, a good thing that helps us to sort of set some groundwork with clients where you can say, look, these are sort of the fundamentals of what content can bring to your organization. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a cost center, it can have actual benefits for, for your organization. Uh, you know, that's great advice, because, you know, one of the things I see, and many of us see and have seen for some time in the continuing medical education world is exactly that process of the writer is at the end of the line, mm-hmm. often Always. brought in at, you know, if not the last minute, but certainly as the last consideration to, you know, provide the words, which by the way, pretty much anyone can do because we all write, you know, is the, is the kind of thinking. And I, I love that focus on really taking a step back and thinking about in the CME world, you know, an activity or a program in terms of its overall design. And I think there's a lot of CME practitioners out there who would welcome that, that message. Right. And I think it takes a, you know, it takes a bigger look at what content actually is. I mean, right. content is not specifically the words. It's how we communicate the entirety of it, right? Mm-hmm. The information might be best communicated through a graph, you know, that's still content, right? Mm-hmm. It might be best communicated through an image of the product or the, you know, the scenario or whatever it may be. That's content. But you have to know where the balance is between, you know, like, does the picture say a thousand words or do we need a thousand words to, you know, to get to what we need to get to? Right. 
and figuring out that bigger picture. And again, keeping, keeping the, the user and the, the audience at, at the center. What is their pain point? What is their need? And so often that's kind of cast to the wayside when, you know, more and more hands, you know, more cooks in the kitchen, right? You know, and <laughs> everything gets kind of messy. Yeah, it does indeed. You know, I feel as though we've covered quite a lot of terrain and certainly for, I'm, I'm coming to this topic fresh. I imagine a lot of listeners will be coming to this topic fresh. Is Most there anything are, yeah. that we haven't kind of touched on that you would want people to have top of mind as they start to noodle around the issue of digital imprint and, and what they can do in their personal and professional lives to, to start unpacking this a little bit? So one of the things that I like to do is, you know, it all seems so daunting, right? Everything mm. related, everything sustainability related just seems massive and daunting. But I like to say, take one element of something that you do, whether that's one page of your website, whether that's, you know, some sort of documentation that you, you, you generate, what, what, whatever it may be, you know, maybe, maybe it's a video, maybe it's your podcast and take a look at it and see, okay, so is there a way to do this? better, leaner, differently in a way that better suits the audience's needs, right? So for for a podcast, I mean, I have one client, bless them. They were trying to release twice a week an hour-long podcast about healthcare products. Now, the numbers in in podcast world do not play out that anybody has two hours a week to listen to you know, a full podcast from a, a medical technology company, right? So could they reduce the frequency? Even if they wanted to do an hour long podcast, could they reduce the frequency? Does it have to be twice a week? Could it be once a week? Could it be every other week? Could it be once a month? Mm -hmm. And would that, you know, would that generate them actually more traction because people aren't looking at that going, oh, like I'm, you know, 12 episodes behind now because I, you know, got busy for a month, right? Right. How do, how can I make that better? Do they truly need an app at all, right? What's what's on their homepage? Does their homepage have a lot of stock art? I mean, one of my clients mm. had a ton of stock art and it was basically just, you know, random people in surgical masks doing nothing in particular, right? They weren't looking at their products. They weren't looking at, they weren't actually literally doing anything. It was, you know, staring at a chart or talking in a hallway, yes. right? I mean, we've all seen these pictures, right? You can take out you know, a megabyte, two megabytes of data off of that page, and then try to extrapolate that out and see like, okay, how, you know, can we make it more useful? If we're going to keep the same weight, can we have actual product pictures? Or can we reduce the the weight of the page to make it download faster, be more, you know, ecologically friendly? So basically coming at it from just better, better balance between serving your audience's needs and the impact to the planet. And that's a great way to, to wrap up. Elisa Bonsignor, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom you so and much. insights with listeners of Right Medicine. It's been great to be here. Thank you. Here are three takeaways for me from today's episode. We need to be aware of the environmental impact of our work. Digital content has a substantial climate impact due to the energy required to power the creation, the storage, and the transfer of all that data. So for example, a video podcast generates 75 times the emissions of an audio podcast. 
we can reduce our digital imprint. As education content creators, we can evaluate if we really need resource-intensive formats like video and imagery, or if audio or text could suffice. For example, using generic stock photos don't necessarily enhance the user experience, and we can consider turning off video during conference calls to save on emissions. And we can make the effort to understand our digital impact. Elisa provided many insights into how digital hoarding and our growing reliance on digital formats increases those carbon emissions. We can get rid of outdated content and transition from apps to mobile sites to reduce emissions with very little sacrifice to utility. So in that spirit, here are three steps that you could take today to implement in your CME CPD content creation process. First, audit and streamline your digital assets by removing outdated content and optimizing current resources to improve both user experience and reduce your environmental impact. Second, shift towards using plain language and lighter weight content formats to lower the energy required for transferring and storing digital data. And third, consider the frequency and necessity of content, such as newsletters and podcasts, so that you can provide value without overwhelming the audience and adding to digital imprint. Thanks for listening. Next week, my guest is Helen Folsom, who'll be talking about building a global CME CE program. Until then, connect with me on LinkedIn, grab the right CME roadmap if you don't already have it, and subscribe to the podcast newsletter, Right Medicine Insider. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for more valuable insights on continuing education for health professionals. See you next time.